Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and today we're heading back to campus. As many of you are certainly well aware, 2017 has been a headline-grabbing year for free speech on college campuses. Consider Evergreen State College in Washington. 50 or so students decided to disrupt the class that I was holding that morning and demand my resignation. Writer Charles Murray is claiming he was manhandled by a mob at Middlebury College. Paul University has been named one of the worst colleges for free speech. And few schools have dealt with more controversial events this year than the University of California, Berkeley, the home of the 1964 free speech movement. The movement that really is responsible for the first push for students' expressive rights on campus. In this episode, I sit down with fire production and design manager Chris Maltby, who I sent to Berkeley twice this year to get a sense of really what's happening on the ground at that historic campus. His first trip came after members of the Berkeley College Republicans invited conservative commentator Ann Coulter to campus in April. And his second trip was when another conservative commentator, this time Ben Shapiro, went to campus to deliver a speech in September. We wanted to find out how the free speech climate has changed or not changed at UC Berkeley since the 1960s. Is it still a place where all students can have a voice? Or are there certain topics for discussions that are just off limits? What do today's students and faculty at Berkeley think about their free speech rights? What do they think about their campus's storied history? Simply put, we wanted to know whether there's any insight into today's free speech debates that can be gained by exploring what happened at Berkeley over five decades ago. So here we go. Chris, thanks for being on the show, man. It's a pleasure to finally come out from behind the camera slash mic. Well, this is this isn't your first time coming coming out from behind the camera slash mic. You you were involved in our Flying Dog podcast last uh, year. That's a fair point. It's been a little while though, I guess. Yeah, but you're our camera video man. Working with Aaron here, we're in we're in the Philadelphia headquarters talking about a school that's been in the headlines a lot recently, right? Yep, uh, Berkeley, UC Berkeley, the home of the free speech movement, right? Or so or so we thought. Earlier this year, they made quite a bit of headlines when Milo Yiannopoulos, right-wing provocateur, came to campus and violence ensued. Two hours before guest speaker Milo Yiannopoulos was set to speak, a small group ripped down barricades, started a fire, and shot fireworks directly at officers. Yep. Uh, Antifa, who's been uh, in the news a lot lately the last couple of years. Short for anti-fascist. Uh, anti-fascist uh, action. Really? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I didn't find that out until I, until I did a little bit more digging. Um, it came about in the 1930s originally. To respond um, to like Mussolini exactly. and uh, yep. other fascist dictators rising yep. in Europe. Has uh, European roots and then was sort of co-opted in the 1980s by uh, punk rock groups. Left-leaning uh, punk rock 
listeners, and uh, there's a popular song, Nazi, Nazi Punks Fuck Off. <laughs> so now it's kind of reared its head again. Uh, the this, rise of this idea of the rise of white nationalism, white supremacy—they're coming out and exactly um, punching Nazis, I guess. Yeah, often uh, referred I to think, as Black Bloc, right? Uh, Black Bloc, I think, is the anarchist faction, and they have a couple of others. It's a very uh, nebulous sort of which groups are which, but uh, they have some communist Antifa people. You got some socialist Antifa people, and then anarchists who somehow fit in with. These more government groups, uh, the communists. communists and socialists, and then anarchists. I don't know how they fit in, but they do, and they are quite violent at times because their tactics are direct action is how they put it, which to a lot of people is violence. Uh, punching Nazis. Punching, punching people preemptively is, is violence. And, and notably for us, they were among the agitators. We don't know exactly who caused the damage and the violent protests at Berkeley. I believe it was February 2nd of this year, 2017, but it caused $100,000 worth of damage and they were forced to cancel Milo Yiannopoulos' speech at the University of California, Berkeley, the home of the free speech movement. An unruly crowd hurled smoke bombs at police, smashed windows and sparked a massive bonfire in opposition to a planned speech by a far-right editor of Breitbart News. It was interesting. We interviewed uh, Katrina, uh, who was um, trying to attend the event. Um, she's a just a local Berkeley area resident who wanted to go see Milo, and her and her husband were attacked. She was pepper sprayed, and he was hospitalized. And it was interesting that we had to conduct her interview at the top of a parking garage. So I asked you guys to meet up here because the first thing that happened to us when we went to the Milo event was my friend Kiara was giving an interview and the violent protesters took the opportunity to come in and attack her and pepper sprayed her live on camera. Several students injured, including this woman, pepper sprayed right on camera. Man. Uh, and it was broadcast and everybody saw it. Uh, so, like she says, uh, right after they arrived, her friend got pepper sprayed and later she herself would get pepper sprayed. I was pepper sprayed uh, by this uh, little all-black clad ninja woman. We uh, had to meet with Katrina at the top of a parking garage uh, at her request because she didn't feel comfortable meeting on campus when I traveled there for the Coulter event. And there was quite a bit of controversy around Ann Coulter's speech, too. Uh, that's right. Yep. Uh, Ann Coulter uh, was invited, and there's a lot of confusion around why she backed out, why it was canceled. We're not entirely sure if it was a flub on the part of the student organizers. A flub or the administration. Or the administration or Young America's Foundation, who was also involved in uh, organizing aspects of it. The University of California, Berkeley, being accused of trying to stifle conservative speech. And Some have said that conservative student groups are intentionally sabotaging events in order to allege bad faith on the part of the Berkeley administration. And it's important to note that this is one possible motive for the culture event falling apart. Caused even more headlines yeah. and, and kept the, the spotlight on Berkeley, the home of the free speech movement, is having free speech controversies of its own. You know, Katrina, you said, mm -hmm. has gotten injured. Right. Her husband was put in the hospital and uh, it's, it's... During it's, the Milo protest. It was a scary... Yeah, you could see him getting hit with one of those flags or, you know... It, uh, one of those poles, and he was, yeah, he was messed up pretty bad. A mesh barrier meant to separate the two sides quickly fell down. 
Protesters began pushing, shoving, and hitting people on the opposite side. And that this is just for seeing, as she put it, an entertainer. She she looks at Milo as an entertainer, not exactly a uh, you know a political luminary or some kind of. Uh, <laughs> In the same way, many people view Ann Coulter. Right. Yeah, but we should be clear here that the Antifa protesters we're talking about to the extent that they are using violence to protest is not protected speech. No. Uh, violence is the antithesis of speech. Speech is what we use instead of violence. And the fact that these violent protesters are allowed to determine who can and cannot speak on any college campus is tremendous cause for concern. Just recently, Chris, as you know, I sent you and our web developer, John uh, Murigliano, to the University of California, Berkeley, because Ben Shapiro, a conservative podcaster and uh, journalist, was set to speak at Berkeley, did speak at Berkeley, but there was a lot of controversy surrounding that, right? Right. Thank you all for being here, because obviously braving the idiots outside is not always easy. Uh, their speech is apparently violent, because my speech is violent, so all speech is violent. So thank you for braving the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune by walking into a building. Congratulations to you. We went there um, hoping that there wouldn't be violence and due, I think, in large part to the university reaction to Milo and the fact that they were heavily criticized for not having enough uh, security present. Uh, they brought out a large police force from Chino, Oakland, UC Berkeley police. It, w it was a massive force brought out to protect everybody involved from the violence we saw from Antifa the first time around with Milo. And it was thankfully successful. I did not witness any violence myself. I saw one person injured. Um, it's hard to say how exactly that happened. I came up afterwards. Um, it was a, a Shapiro person fell down. But if that's compared to the violence at Milo, it was certainly a lot less uh, violent this time around. It's, it's a shame that we call $600,000 worth of security to protect one speaker a victory for free speech, but I guess such is the situation on college campuses today. What were some of the things that you saw when you were at Berkeley? It's it's interesting. Uh, we went on campus, we walked around, conducted a lot of interviews with students. The general feeling I got from the average student walking around is like, oh, dude, I got a test tomorrow. The, uh, you know, who are these fucking Republicans? I don't care. Like, yeah, whatever. And that, that was kind of a, the feeling I got from a lot of your average students who Go there because Berkeley is a great school for math and science. Um, and that's that's a feeling I got. But then the more politically active students were very charged up and opinionated about it. I, I spoke to one uh, – the interview that stands out for me is the one interview with the a law student at Berkeley, a third-year law student who firmly believes that hate speech is not free speech. Um, yeah, words themselves can be violent, especially when they're not true or don't, don't feel true. And I talked to her and she— Which isn't true under First Amendment doctrine, but she is free to make that argument. She's free to make that argument. I think she's going to have to get two-thirds of Congress and a constitutional <laughs> amendment to make that, you know, law. But she's she's free to make the case if she wants to. You're right. Um, it's funny because the conversations I had in the run-up to the Ben Shapiro event and— versus the Ann Coulter event were different. I think the political... You were, uh, you were on campus both times. I was on campus both times. And for the Coulter event in April, the political temperature I don't think is nearly as hot as it is now. That's your fucking job! So get to the front lines and do the fucking work! Do the fucking work! Because you're not doing enough! You 
first time around, we're like, oh, yeah, free speech. You know, bring them to campus. We'll ask them questions. And that was the feeling around the Coulter event. And, and now Charlottesville happened over the summer. Sure. I'm shocked and appalled that someone lost their life today when they came out to protest hate. And, and Charlottesville life. happens. I think there's a certain malaise or certain anger that's been brewing you know, on the left with the current administration. Um, and now with Ben Shapiro, the conversations I had were were starkly different, I think, with a lot of students um, who don't want any more provocateurs coming to campus. They don't want any more conservatives coming to campus. Well, I talk to, I talk to activists all the time about, even if you don't support the freedom of speech principally, and we can have disagreements there, you should respect it tactically because every time you try and censor your opponent you give them a greater platform mm-hmm. uh, my Yiannopoulos is a great indication of that everything that's happened is at berkeley is a great indication of that one of the reasons i think that there's this hyper focus on berkeley surrounding the campus free speech debates is because it's the home of the campus free speech movement. Sure. Thinking back to 1964 when students at the University of California, Berkeley, tried to create agency for themselves, throw off in a local apprentice, you know, because they had a principled stand that they felt as young people active in a, in a democracy, they, their voice should be heard. It became, in its simplest form, a fight about freedom of speech. But as almost everyone knows, it was much more than that. The university sought to impose upon the students a series of regulations on political activity and the solicitation of funds that the students felt to be in violation of their constitutional rights. And I sent you out you know, on this journey to take a look at Berkeley then yep. and see, you know, what we can learn that can inform the conversation about what's happening at Berkeley now. Right, right, right. Uh, so I went to Berkeley twice this year when controversial speakers visited campus. And to gain some perspective on those incidents, um, I visited Chicago to talk to Jack Weinberg about Berkeley's history. Uh, Jack's a veteran of the free speech movement. Um, we reached out to a handful of free speech veterans uh, or veterans of the free speech movement and we were thankful when Jack got back to us. He's a Berkeley alum and really just a hero for free speech who helped change the rules governing students' rights to free expression. Elections, um, civil rights, anything that was an off-campus issues, this was off-bounds. On, on the books, these were the rules. Going back to the time when the notion of the university was, they called it in loco parentis. In loco parentis is a Latin for in place of parents. It was a paternalistic notion of the university. Parents give their children up to the university, and then the university takes on the, the parents' role and prevents the children from getting into trouble. Jack's actually also credited with a famous line I think a lot of listeners might have heard before, and that's, uh, don't trust anyone over 30. But he's not, the, he's not who is often associated w- with the free speech movement. He's not, oft, he's not the face. The face is Mario Salvio, who is unfortunately no longer with us, uh, passed away in the 90s. I ask you to consider if this is affirmed, and if the Board of Regents are the Board of Directors, and if President Kerr, in fact, is the manager 
And I tell you something, the faculty are a bunch of employees and we're the raw materials. But we're a bunch of raw materials that don't mean to be, have any process upon us, don't mean to be made into any product, don't mean, don't mean to end up being bought by some clients of the university, be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. But they worked closely together. Uh, Mario uh, ran the local chapter of the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee. And Jack was a member of the Congress of Racial Equality, both probably among the most active groups in the early 1960s on Berkeley's campus. Both are national organizations, but they these two guys ran their local chapters. And they met in 1963, getting arrested together <laughs> at uh, the Sheridan Hotel um, you know, pushing an agenda for racial equality and desegregation. I think we met in jail or on the way to jail. And um, I think he, he subsequently credited me with convincing him to become a, you know, to go to Mississippi and become fully involved. Uh, in the free speech. So I didn't, I, but I didn't really get to know. And so, from there, uh, it, w- it wasn't long before uh, 1964 rolls around and the administration of Berkeley um, enacts a new rule that at um, the corners of Bancroft and Telegraph. And right before the semester began, the university administration issued um, a ruling saying that um, the strip at, at Bancroft and Telegraph, which had always been considered to be city property, that this is actually university property. And um, the same rules that apply on the, the rest of the university of property apply there, namely that any advocacy uh, for on any social or political issue that was not specifically a campus issue was prohibited. The corners of Bancroft and Telegraph, the epicenter of a lot of these protests you hear about in in Berkeley, um, still today. Still today. Um, that's where I spent most of my time, actually. Um, you can know, you can you can you set the scene for us? What does it look like there? Um, let's see. Well, so you're basically if you're standing at uh, Bancroft and Telegraph, you're looking at the Berkeley campus. There's almost always you know action there. People hanging out. Um, I filmed a, uh, a student rapping there for, in very political terms, like a spoken word kind of thing. He had his own beatbox. Exactly what I'd expect and, stepping foot on the <laughs> campus of Berkeley. Um, most people probably ignoring him, but he's, he was just going at it. He, he was a cool guy. And I live my life just to see the sun set, see the sun rise as a young king. Um, and it's... It looks like what you would expect to see for, out of Berkeley. It's very, very cool, very hip, a little grungy. <laughs> but uh, overall, it's, it's got a lot of activity, and this is where, still to this day, everybody who wants to get a little political attention goes um, to protest, to pass out pamphlets. Um, and, it's a, and it's a place where in the community you'll see a lot of older political activists mm-hmm. um, looking to get student involvement um, in their cause. It's like the Speaker's Corner in London. Perhaps <laughs> where people go to express themselves, and it's sure. where Jack and Mario that's, went, and that's where they went. Because at that time, prior to 1964, you were not allowed to engage in political activity that didn't directly involve campus issues. So, if you wanted to protest the fact that coffee costs 25 cents in the cafeteria, I think you could probably do that to some extent. But at this time, I think, uh, at least according to Jack, the big issues were for him and for a lot of the most active groups, um, desegregation in, in Oakland and the surrounding San Francisco area, the Bay Area. How did Jack get interested in 
politics? Because you mentioned to me that he came to it in an unusual way. Yeah, he he's from upstate New York. He was attending SUNY Buffalo, and he did not feel challenged, really. I couldn't stand it anymore um, for various reasons, partly living home, partly um, because um, it didn't challenge me. It was too easy. <clears throat> I dropped out of school, and I hitchhiked around for a while, and I came home, and then I got married, uh, and then I moved to California, San Francisco, because it was the very farthest place that I could go. Speaking of Steinbeck, in, in the book, The um, Wayward Bus, Steinbeck said that the United States is on a tilt, and all the loose nuts roll to California. He considered himself a loose nut? Yeah, I think it, he didn't exactly say what drew him there, other than California is the furthest away he could get from, from upstate New York. Uh, I think he was in kind of a Jack Kerouac on the road kind of phase, so him and his then-wife uh, went to California and shared a one-bedroom and a Murphy bed in uh, the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. The whole beat generation thing was happening in San Francisco and um, and was being pilloried in the press, and that attracted me to it. So San Francisco had an allure. I he eventually uh, just kind of just got into social advocacy. He wouldn't say that he was political. I think he got into social adv- advocacy because he viewed it in moral terms, not so much political terms. After a little while, I think he joined in a smaller role, the core group that we uh, that I just talked about. Yeah. And through then, I think he just got more and more involved. And despite wanting to pursue mathematics, um, which was his major at the time as an undergrad, he just couldn't help himself, I guess. I'd become a full-time civil rights activist. Um, Our expectation in 64 was that the civil rights movement was continuing to peak. So the administration at that time takes Telegraph and Bancroft, this cross street that for years has always been known as a community space off campus where political activity, it was their free speech zone. Um, and except it was an off-campus free speech zone. Um, and then the university all of a sudden discovers, no, wait, this is actually part of our campus, so you can't engage in political activity here anymore. Wow. You could not hand out a leaflet. You could not make a speech. You could not raise money uh, on behalf of any off-campus social or political issue. Essentially silencing the place you go for political speech, and that set the ball rolling. So we get to September of 1964, and uh, Jack and other free speech movement luminaries uh, set up a tabling event and and got the protest going. The only reason that I took part in this is because I like Cal very much. I'd like to see it better. Um, a dean comes by and tells them that they're not and allowed. They're, to... they're protesting what the university is doing by taking away their space for political activity, or are the... they protesting just? National issues they're, or everything. They're protesting their own issues. They're, they uh, set up a tabling event um, and and put out their pamphlets just like they would any other day on, you know, at Telegraph and Bancroft, except they moved it inside the campus this time to a place that was clearly within campus borders, which is Sather Gate. At a meeting, and I think this was Mario's idea, but I, I wholeheartedly endorse it. He, he said, well, this is before we had the name Free Speech Movement, so he said, well, if... If the Bancroft and Telegraph corridor is the same as the rest of the campus, then we should have free speech everywhere on campus. And so with that, we made a decision to set up 
advocacy tables in the middle of campus at a place called Sather Gate. It's the, it's the place where you see that famous free speech movement photo where they're carrying the banner. I think they have this mm-hmm. photo up all over campus. Yeah. So, celebrating the movement. <laughs> yeah. You, that Berkeley administrators weren't celebrating at the time. No. So they set up their tabling event. Um, and a dean comes by and says, you're not allowed to do this. And they say, We're, our national organization um, has not given us the right to take down this table. Um, and so the dean takes all their student IDs and says, you're going to be disciplined at a later date. Come to Sproul Hall, the administration building, the following day at such and such time. And so they, he gets, I think, eight names. So after he gets eight names, then they just start passing around a sheet of paper to all the people and say, if you want to, you know, take our names down, fine. But, you know, you're, there's hundreds of us. So what comes after this is a sit-in in the administration building where the following day when hundreds of students who say, hey, we, we all, you know, if you're going to punish one of us, you're going to have to punish several hundred of us because we all did the same thing. Wow, so they all just walked into the administration building yep. and just sat in and protest and engaging. But presumably, though, this, this speech is in response to a campus issue, which, you know, maybe? Uh, I, I would think, I would call it a campus issue, not being allowed to, you know, voice your opinions. But at the time, I'm not sure if administrators would Yeah, and sitting and occupying a campus building is not necessarily protected speech. That's civil disobedience, but nonetheless. Sure, but um, after the initial sit-in, Jack and others returned the following day and set up tables at Sproul Hall. Deans came by the campus core table, picked me up, told me to identify myself. I said no. So he he called for police to take me away. The police came. They brought a police car onto campus. While we were waiting for the police car to come on campus, I stood up. I started making a speech about free speech, about our rights, about the university's attitude towards students, things like that. And so we had a good crowd gathered before they got the police car on campus. I went limp, they dragged me to the car, and by the time they got me into the car, it was surrounded. So Jack's arrested and he's sitting in a cop car in the middle of Sproul, like right in front of Sproul Hall, which is the middle of campus. What's where a lot of these protests are happening surrounding the speakers that we're hearing about today at Berkeley. Right. Uh, it's, it's iconic. It, it is the, and it's, it's funny because it's an administration building. It's not a <laughs> political science building or something. What's the building look like? It's hard to describe it. It looks like it, it, it's got pillars. It's like a, I guess, colonial style. I'm not an architect. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's got these cool steps. It looks like a platform where you would want to give a very passionate and fiery speech. Okay. Um, and, and I'm sure a lot of people pose as Mario Salvio for their tourist pictures at, mm-hmm. at times. As people do when they pose as like Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, right. which it, is like tailor-made to give a speech to a large 100,000-person yeah. audience. It has a, a – and there there is a, a nice clear space um, right out in front of it where you know, people can congregate. Where a lot of people can congregate, and they did, uh, thousands in fact. So here, here Jack is uh, arrested. Sitting in the cop car. Sitting in the cop car. Uh, with a uh, a very, <laughs> at least the picture I'm thinking of has a very uh, bored looking policeman standing next to him. <laughs> I was by then a, a pretty seasoned activist. I mean, I felt like I was the, the cat who swallowed the canary <laughs> the whole time. 
the policemen did four-hour shifts or whatever. They were they were just doing their job. There was no there was no tension. There was no hostility. Um, uh, but it was it was a dilemma for the university. Uh, he spent 32 hours uh, in this cop car. Why? Could um, they not get him out? Um, the students were sitting around it. They wouldn't let him get arrested. Here's Jack from a documentary from 1990. This car was surrounded with people. It was two minutes to 12. There's this commotion going on. Some people are joining in. Some people are stopping to watch. This police car is going nowhere. He clearly enjoyed it. He was a sophisticated, I think, strategic uh, movement tactician at this point. He knew what he was doing. Um, He learned this. He spent, I think, three years prior to this in the Bay Area politically active, uh, or at least socially active, in in these well-structured groups that knew what they were doing. Uh, Same with Mario, same with a lot of the... Activists. A a lot of these activists, they... A lot of them um, would go to, you know, things like... A lot of them were freedom riders. A lot of them engaged in uh, Freedom Summer, going to Mississippi. And they they had a structure. They were very sophisticated in how they went about this. And I think that... if if there's one listen, if there's one thing you could take away from this from activists today, I think it's get organized because you can achieve something if you actually have discipline and you have goals and you set milestones the way they did during this movement. Yeah. So, so how did the how did the standoff end? It was a they they had a truce. Uh, so there were three main terms. It was their Appomattox courthouse. Right. <laughs> uh, Jack was to be released with no charges. That was the main uh, point that um, the activists of that day uh, wanted. Would, that's what they wanted. Although actually, uh, Jack would ultimately serve three months in uh, Al- Alameda County Jail. Also, demonstrators um, had to disperse, which they agreed to. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, would review the rules and consider changes at a later date. So basically... Review the things that the students went into Sprawl Hall to protest in the first place. Right. Um, But they didn't commit to actually changing anything. No, nothing was committed to in September, October of uh, 1964. That would come later. That would take a few months. Mm -hmm. Um, But this sort of galvanized the student movement at Berkeley at the time, right? And And it put the administration on notice, I think, that this issue isn't going away. Um... And then the the actions that would they would take over the next I think month or two reflected that, but I don't think they really got it yet. Um, but did any university in the country really get it? I mean, or was this the place where this new movement to throw in local parentis off of students occur? This this was the seminal moment I think where um, these mo- these next couple months were were the first. That's where the dominoes would start to fall. Exactly. Arrests were threatened. People didn't run away. More people came and sat down. People were trying to avoid it, felt they had to sit down. People were saying, join us, join us. I think universities, a lot of them were principled in their defense of free speech and got what the protesters at Berkeley were saying. But a lot of other schools, I think, just like, whoa, I don't want to deal Mm -hmm. with that. And a lot of the Supreme Court precedent that came in discussing the unique role that freedom of speech occupies in the educational environment wouldn't come until around that time or later. So it's not like you're, you're making a, you know, a moral principled argument, not a legal argument at this point. Right. Um, so the law at times does follow the, the moral principle. Um, yeah. But the case was being made here in 1964 at Berkeley why these students are, are not children. They're adults. Did Jack tell you how this idea of being f- the free speech being the principal goal 
of the movement came to be? Um, it, it started out, I think, as strategic. Um, they, to advocate for these other things like desegregation. Um, it, it was a it was a um, essential tool that they needed to have in order to get these other messages across about uh, racial equality and and you know nonviolent activism. If they weren't allowed to hand out leaflets at Bancroft and Telegraph. Then what? What were they supposed to do? How are they? They supposed couldn't to- go to Facebook or yeah. Twitter. <laughs> it didn't exist yet. Yeah, uh, you know, presumably you can buy advertisements in the New York Times or try and get a reporter to do it. But that's a pretty big barrier to entry. Um, I, I think. I think really the thing that um, that mobilized them to to take these steps was the moral principle of free speech. But the first thing was that it it's needed. If if you want to make real change in our society, you have to be able to voice your opinion. So where did the free? Where did this movement go next? So, um, so that would bring us to, um, they, they were continuing to, to pass they're they're continuing to push, they were continuing to, to mobilize, but I think where things really started to escalate was after Thanksgiving break, um, 1964, 1964 Thanksgiving break and free speech movement leaders find out that they're, some of them are getting expelled and some of them are getting suspended. Um, for all their political activity. Um, does it have the name Free Speech Movement yet? Yes, it does. Um, so this came about, I <laughs> Is think— Is there any lore surrounding how it came about? J- I asked Jack about it, and he's like, I don't know. I mean, everybody says I named it. I guess I named it. <laughs> you asked about where the name Free Speech Movement came from. Uh, it was the next day we had a meeting. So Jack's talking about October 3rd, the day after he was arrested. Where we decided how we would organize ourselves. And we adopted the name Free Speech Movement. And I cannot honestly say that I came up with that name. I know that I, um, I thought it was a great name, and I argued for it. Yeah, and then its members started facing some administrative punishment. Um, right. So, so they're getting punished for this, and I don't think, because it did die down a little bit, they weren't doing sit-ins at this point. They weren't occupying buildings. They weren't shutting the campus down. So the administration, I think, starts to get the idea that they have the upper hand maybe and that maybe the folk, they're losing focus. The protesters are losing focus. Yeah, I mean that happens with students. We see that at FIRE. These are people who are in many cases engrossed in their studies. There are periods where they need to be focused on tests or they go on fall break, for example, around Thanksgiving. And they come back and these movements sort of – Fizzle, so they ebb and wane, sort of with the what's happening on campus, um, academically. And, sure, and 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 you can understand that. I mean, these are these are busy students at a prominent university that is demanding. Um, so so that makes sense. But I think uh, because free speech is such a nobody owns free speech, right? It's you know Republicans are going to push for it, Democrats are going to push for it because everybody. Everybody has an agenda. Everybody needs to voice their opinion. So um, a lot of libertarians also were, you know, in the free speech movement, maybe less vocal, less prominent. But um, there, there's a conservative case to be made on campus then that— Did it, Was it a bipartisan movement, did you I, say? Um, I think there was a lot of conservative Republican pushback. Um, Jack uh, pointed out the editor of the Oakland Tribune as the leader. He was a former U.S. senator. His name's William Noland. Um, leader of the pushback? Uh, the leader of the um, attempts off campus to influence the administration to censor. Okay. Um, and so he was – he had a lot of uh, misgivings about desegregation in the Bay Area. He's not – and all and all the anti sort of 
anti-authority uh, that was going on in the Bay Area. So he was uh, prominent in the Oakland Tribune, and he was also a Berkeley alum, so I think there was something personal there for him. Um, so in Jack's opinion, the, the California Republican Party was one of the biggest opponents, uh, opponents of, uh, of the free speech movement. There were very angry political forces in California, led by a man named William Noland, chairman of the California Republican Party and editor of the Oakland Tribune. And he had told the university in no uncertain terms that if the university continued to serve as a base for these, what he considered attacks on the community, they would not get the funding that they were looking for. We're here after Thanksgiving break in December. Are we starting to see the administration capitulate? Uh, the administration uh, the administration is not capitulating. They're doing the exact opposite. <laughs> They're escalating their punishments for uh, for free speech movement activists. And this is around the time that Mario Savio makes his famous "Put your bodies on the gears" speech. This is the exact moment. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. He was articulating what people were feeling. And so he was recognized as the spokesperson by everybody. He was never elected, but it was just, it just happened very quickly. And, and Jack had an interesting... Um, take on Mario, um, something that I didn't know. I knew that Mario Salvio at some point had a speech impediment, but I didn't realize that his stutter came back after the free speech movement. So it disappeared during the free speech movement or something he overcame. I, I th- This is how Jack described it to me. He said that whenever Mario was speaking on behalf of others, his speech impediment went away. And whenever he was voicing his own opinions, it came back. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like some like mythical lore. Just prior to that, he had a terrible speech impediment. And afterwards, he had a speech impediment. But during the free speech movement, when he was in the position of articulating commonly held views, he had the self-confidence to speak. He was a very modest person, personally. And I think when he was just expressing his own opinion, he wasn't that sure he had a right to his own opinion. And I think that might have contributed to his stammer. But when he was speaking on behalf of a large number of people, it suddenly he became this brilliant orator. It's like he rose to the occasion, but when yeah. people didn't need him anymore, he, you know, was human again. <laughs> that, that's how it's, it's like he put on some like magic cape or something and then uh, became Superman, took it off, and he's no longer Superman. Well, they wrote a book about him called Freedom's Orator. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, a, that's, an incredi- that's an incredible story. It's the first week of December, 1964. The free speech movement has taken over the campus. They're sitting in at Sproul Hall. And Edwin Meese, the assistant district attorney, is lobbying Edmund Brown to send the cops to bust these protesters for unlawful assembly. And the decision to arrest us came from Governor Edmund Brown, um, the father of Jerry Brown. And so 800 of us were arrested. Um, it leads to literally, let's see, 800 arrests, student arrests. There's a massive student sit-in. 800? 800 arrests. Arrests were going on. 
Uh, and as this was all happening, the FSM had decided to split its leadership and half would go to jail and the other half would be there to organize the strike. And so we had another leadership group waiting. And so picket lines went up around campus and the strike was very effective. Most departments, classes were either canceled or had very low attendance. A lot of faculty and others took their students off campus and held their classes in the park or someplace off campus. As effective a student strike as I have ever heard about was pulled off. The administrations made one last move. They called for a meeting of the whole campus community to be held in the Greek theater to explain the university's point of view and the um, and the message was we need you know we need to reestablish um, community and harmony on the campus. Except they don't invite any of the students from the free speech movement to speak. It did not acknowledge the root cause of the conflict. We were planning to have a rally immediately afterwards um, to respond. So Mario tries to go up on stage. Mario walked onto stage with the intent of just announcing that um, we would be holding a rally to express the, another, uh, our point of view, to our, our response. He walked onto the stage and he was pounced. And is immediately tackled <laughs> by security. <laughs> he's, he's pulled to the ground. By two policemen, grabbed by his tie, knocked to the ground, sat on top of in front of thousands of people. And everyone in the audience erupts, like, what the hell are you doing? We're just, you're talking about civility. And people were up in arms and angry and everybody was upset. And, 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 and they quickly saw their mistake. And people were saying, let him speak, let him speak. So finally they let him up on stage and speak when they see that uh, this isn't going over well. Uh, so they quickly saw their mistake and they pulled the police off and they let Mario to the microphone. And all he said was, FSM will be holding a rally immediately afterwards on Sproul Hall strips to give our response. And, but, 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 they, but they had completely lost. At that point, the administration had no credibility. We then convened our rally. There were as many people or more than there had been um, in the Greek theater. Several of the department chairmen had come up to us and said, can I speak at your rally? And of course, we said yes. So we responded, and then several department chairs got up, including one, I can't remember now which one of these sort of leading people at the, at, who had been at the previous meeting. And he basically said, um, the university community is now in your hands. You know, you know, be wise with it. The academic senate, had a meeting scheduled for the next day, December 8th, where they were gonna consider a um, resolution on free speech. On December 8th, the Berkeley Division of the University's Academic Senate voted 824 to 115 in favor of a statement that put the faculty solidly behind the students. Victory for the free speech movement. The free speech movement has won, so free speech now reigns at the University of California, Berkeley. And then we slowly start to see other universities adopt this principle where students can engage in activism 
on campus and speak their minds and be who they are. Sure. As you, as you put it, and I think that's an apt way of describing it, the dominoes fall after this. Um, what does Jack think, you know, of the legacy of the free speech movement? They have books written about this now, and FIRE's role as a nonprofit organization is large part to fulfill the hope of that movement. He's really proud of it. He he draws a direct line between the free speech movement's success and the protest of the Vietnam War and the increased rights of students to voice their opinions. This is a little bit more speculative. When I review the history of opposition to previous wars, the Korean War, World War II, World War I, or wars in other countries, governments generally do not tolerate anti-war movements when a war is being fought. They usually are quite vigorously repressed. And I won't say there was no repression against the anti-Vietnam War movement, but it was, it was nickel and dime stuff compared to what had gone before. What does it teach us about today? We had the Milo protests. We had the Ann Coulter controversy. Ben Shapiro cost Berkeley $600,000 to speak on campus. Is this the price we need to pay for the 1964 Berkeley free speech movement? Um, unfortunately. I mean, I think uh, Carol Christ, the new chancellor, um, is dedicated. I think she's dedicated to... Um, to making sure that these conservative viewpoints can be heard on her campus. To fulfilling the legacy of the free speech movement. Uh, she was a professor at Berkeley, an English professor in the 1980s. She calls Berkeley her home. She's really, I think, trying to bring the legacy back to Berkeley that she thinks might be slipping away. More speech, I think, is the most important counter to hateful speech. Counter their arguments, show how wrong and bigoted they are. Invite your own speakers, ones that are far more compelling than some of the um, really pretty dismal and trivial speakers that um, some groups have invited. You spoke with students on campus there, and you spoke with Jack, who sort of gave you a digest of what Berkeley was like when he was there. How are student attitudes the same or different? Tell me a little bit about some of the people you spoke with. Right. I I spoke with a number of students that I think— support the the basic tenets of the free speech movement um even the um i i interviewed the uh, this was last year's uh president and political director of the the berkeley democrats and they were both yeah like yeah bring ann coulter to campus i mean we think her ideas are dog shit but uh we're gonna protest and we're gonna ask her tough questions and they 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 clearly meant it if you want to protest protest like this is yeah yeah exactly and you know just realize, like, if you're gonna bring a troll to campus, like, don't be shocked when somebody's out there, like, with a loud horn calling you all kinds of names. Yeah. But then you speak to other students, like the the law student, who thinks um, that conservatives shouldn't have a platform. And now, with the cost rising, just to protect them because of off-campus forces, presumably uh, destroying $100,000 in damage for Milo, $600,000 security fee for Ben Shapiro, and the cost keeps rising. Um, there's now a financial argument to be made against, uh, unfortunately, against free speech. Um, with- Which won't win out in the courts because in order for – it's incumbent upon the government. The reason we institute a government in the first place is to protect our rights. You read the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson talks about we institute governments among men to you know protect our unalienable rights. 
but you know that comes with the cost. Presumably, that's why we pay taxpayer dollars, and the university can't shut these events down unless there's a credible threat of violence, unforeseen credible threat of violence that the police cannot account for. It must be shutting down the event, as they did with Milo Yiannopoulos, must be the last opportunity or the last thing they do after all other solutions are exhausted. Right. And and I think um, that shutting down these events uh, due to violence is just – once we get to that point, it's already too late, right? Um, once just civility just totally breaks down, it's I think it's too late. So I think the case needs to be – But did Jack have anything to say about violence? And speech, I mean, what was there any of that to a certain extent during the free speech movement? You had subtle forms of civil disobedience, standing on top of a police car, occupying a building. Right. She didn't have fires. No. He didn't have uh, people getting sent to the hospital, maybe. He talked about, I think it was called like the White Citizens Council or some, he, he described them as, you know, KKK in suits. He saw the Streisand effect like 50 years before uh, it happened because he didn't want he, – he said that if we were to protest and try to shut these people down, we'd make them victims. We'd make them more sympathetic. We didn't want to do that. So we were just having our own demonstrations to counter their speech and say, you know, look how ridiculous these ideas are that they're propagating over here. Once you become the issue rather than they become the issue – then it changes the dynamic and you build support for them and you build sympathy for them and you you draw attention to them. You don't want to do that. He's right. I mean, would we know Milo's name? Would, how, would Milo be this popular if Antifa didn't, you know, make a nationwide story by th- by hurling fireworks at administrative buildings? Multive cocktails, yeah. But student, it sounds like the student attitudes in some were the same mixed bag back then as they were are to are today. But I think on steroids, I think the media has a lot to do with this. I think people from out of state coming to UC Berkeley's campus is new. Because they can organize online, presumably. Right. They, they can organize online. It's a lot easier to get um, a network together of like-minded people from so multiple states. So back then, states. it was more of a community dispute, whereas now it's become a national one. Exactly. And I, and I think, for me, that's that's the major difference. I don't, I don't think attitudes have changed that much. Um, they certainly have with regards to free speech and hate speech discussions. Fire's a survey coming out where we um, examine— I think you know, by the time this podcast comes out, it'll have already been out. Right. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. But I, I think this off-campus—the off-campus forces that were, you know, the Oakland Tribune, which is right next door to Berkeley, and the off-campus forces of San Francisco, I mean, that's still a community. I I, we met people when I was there from, you know, different parts of the country that were coming to campus. Um, you know, there were students from Philadelphia that actually came. I, I met two St- Drexel students while I was there, and we were like, uh, John and I walked up. Drexel started, here, Philadelphia campus, yeah, college. And, and they weren't there to protest, but they, they were in San Francisco for, tour, you know, for tourist reasons, and they heard about what was going on in Berkeley and decided, let's just show up and see what the show looks like. Yeah. Um, I think that's a that's a big thing, too, is a lot of these people that show up aren't necessarily the most political act, uh, active. They don't have the, you know, the most diehard opinions about any one topic, but the tribalism of today, I think, draws a lot of people um, say, I have to go back my team up, let me go to Berkeley and just see what's going on, and before you know it, you know, you have a crowd of you know, 10,000, whereas maybe you would have only had 1,000 back in 1964. Yeah, but the main difference between then and today is that back then, the starting point was censorship and you were advocating for free speech, 
Right now, the starting point is fulfilling the legacy for the administration at Berkeley of the free speech movement, defending free speech, and they're pushing back against forces that want to limit it. Right. Um, and it's and that is that is a strange turning it on its head. I think of of advocates of student advocates in 1964 saying, "Hey, we're adults. You know, don't baby us." And now it's you know, don't invite, don't don't give these people a platform because because their their voice is going to cause me emotional pain, and uh, that's that's definitely a different aspect to to the conversation today about free speech on on Berkeley's campus. I've had you looking at Berkeley for almost a year now. Where do you think it's going moving forward? Do you think the tension on campus has waned a bit, or do you think it's just going to continue to ratchet up? Where are we going? I think, if I had to guess, um, Carol Christ has promised a free speech year. Um, Carol Christ, the chancellor, the, right? The, the new chancellor. Free Carol. speech year for the university. So I think for the foreseeable months and about in the school year ahead of us, we are going to see uh, more tensions on campus, more protests. Um, this isn't the end of the Berkeley story at all. Um, there are other national groups hosting events to try to bring the, I think, to try to calm people down and bring the temperature down in the room. They're hosting events at Berkeley. Yes. Um, and I hope they're successful. I have my doubts. I th- There are a lot of off-campus forces that I think are going to continue to come to Berkeley because it's this it's the capital of free speech and of universities in America. So I don't see uh, the temperature coming down anytime soon. Yeah. Well, Jack is in part responsible for making it the capital of free speech in, in America. That was Berkeley then. This is Berkeley now. And we'll see where it goes. Uh, yes, we will. We're going to be on the story. If you enjoyed this podcast, stay tuned for a fire video about Berkeley, featuring clips from the free speech movement, clips from this year's Berkeley protests, and clips from our interview with Jack Weinberg. The video should be available sometime this month, and as always, it can be found on FIRE's YouTube page at youtube.com slash thefireorg. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and Chris Maltby. The podcast is recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. As you know, reviews help us attract new listeners to this show. Until next time, I thank you all again for listening.